Welcome to Pivot, a podcast for church leaders sponsored by Faith Lead at Luther Seminary. Pivot invites church leaders to use disruptive moments to reimagine how they think about church, ministry, and leadership. Welcome to Pivot. I'm Terry Elton. And I am Alicia Granholm. And today our topic is not knowing. What an interesting topic we have today, Alicia. Do you want to introduce our guest? I would absolutely love to. Today, our guest is Inez Velasquez McBride. She is the co-pastor and co-founder of The Church We Hope For that is based in Southern California. She's originally from Nicaragua. She recently served as a seminary chaplain at Fuller Seminary, and she loves salsa dancing. (laughs) Welcome, Inez. We are super happy to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Alicia and Terry. So Inez, we are curious, why is not knowing considered an art when it comes to ministry? You know, nothing scares me more than a blank page before I have to write a seminary paper or to write a sermon. And so it is terrifying because not knowing is terrifying. As a leader, I feel like it is a confession that you're not all-knowing to say that there's an art to not knowing, it's a confession that you're not all knowing, that you're not like Yahweh, that you're not like God. So that's a good thing because for me, it puts me in my place. And also, I don't know is some of the best theology there is just to say an answer, I don't know. To say that there is mystery that's unexplainable, that there's uh, some unsearchable things that we will just never know is Jonah a myth or did it really happen? I don't know, but the story is still authoritative in my faith and in my life. And I think sometimes, sometimes I don't think that the opposite of faith is doubt. Maybe it's certainty. And so to say, I don't know, or not knowing is an act of faith and is an act of, of searching and seeking and finding on the way as you are on the way, as you are going. And so Not knowing, I think, is an art, and it can be a tool. It can even be a spiritual discipline, a place of discovery, a place of revelation, a place where God allows to self-reveal to us, a place where we find out our limits, our limitations. We find out more about ourselves. Not knowing puts us in places where we, we feel the points of pain, right, and points of pressure, and those points of pain become places of possibility. And so not knowing, allowing it to be a tool and embracing it can be terrifying, but it can be a great place of revelation. So it is an art and our human instinct, our flesh is to maybe like to say, no, I do know. I am certain about dot, dot, dot. But to say, I don't know, it's a terrifying theology, but um, a mystery and maybe an adventure. My gosh, so much good stuff in that, that I want to unpack Sure. But let me let me assume for just a second that we could go with that on the faith side, right? Like there's probably people that want to argue that, but let's just say we're going to embrace the mystery side of faith and that we're not God. But my sense is, especially when I talk to new uh, grads, you know, new pastors, new youth workers, whatever, and especially if they have some training, 
maybe a theological degree or some other training, people expect them to know and the pressure to know, you yes. know, so the leadership part yes. of that kind of pushes against the mystery. Can you talk about that yes. just a little bit? Oh, I love that question. I remember one of my professors here at Fuller when I was a student, I was taking interpretive practices and she would never answer our questions or she would never answer my questions. And so did my Old Testament professor. Anytime I asked him questions, he would answer my question with a question. And I did not know until one of them said this, Dr. Love Secrets was her name. She said, Inez, I don't want to, de- I don't want to teach you what to think. I want to teach you how to think. Because it would be very easy for me to be in that hierarchical position of like, well, you are the expert, you're the master, I'm the student. Tell me what to think. The harder thing was for her to say, I want to teach you how to think about anything, any issue, A, B, or C. And so there are some things that I've come to my own conclusions that I think I'm certain about. The love of God, God's steadfast and tested love for us, right? I have come to believe in Jesus and I have come to believe um, on his sacrifice on the cross, but I have come to believe that. And the other thing about that, embracing the mystery, is the art of conversation. I was just preaching on the curse in the garden, uh, how I I believe that the curse in Genesis 3 is not a blessing and it's not prescriptive for humanity, but descriptive. And what happens there is the art of conversation of a God who says to Adam, where are you? God already knew where Adam and Eve were. God already knew that they had uh, eaten from the tree that God had told them not to eat from, right? But God is always inviting us into conversation. When God says, where are you? He already knows. He's pretending maybe he doesn't know. Um, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the garden that I, from the tree in the garden that I commanded you not to eat? He's always inviting us into conversation, not for the sake of condemnation, but for the sake of maybe restoration. And so that mystery to me, it involves not knowing, involves conversation, involves intimacy, involves faith to converse with a God that wants to talk with me and uh, cares about what I think and feel and do. Uh, There's mystery there and there's revelation there. So I don't know if that answers your question, Terry. Maybe it just helps us ask better questions. The art of asking curious questions, the art of asking courageous questions is part also of the skill of saying, I don't know, of the art of not knowing. And on the way, you're finding your way. And that's harder than saying, well, I know this, then you must believe this. Or invite someone into a conversation about Jesus or invite someone into a conversation about the difficult things in the Old Testament that are that bring a lot of tension, the violence that we see in the Old Testament, right? Am I certain that God asked to annihilate a lot of people? Those are hard questions. And it's easier to say, I know, than to say, I don't know about this. Let us explore together in community. I love that, Inez. Uh, gosh, so many thoughts about that. And I, uh, I, one of the things that you reminded me of is a question that I, uh, or a response, I should say, from my dad that growing up I absolutely hated uh, and then grew to love because I would ask him a question and his response was, well, I don't know. What does the Bible have to say about it? 
And it drove me crazy because, right? Like, I think within us is, (laughs) as you kind of named, is this like, no, I I want the certainty. Like, I'm seeking certainty. I just want a definitive answer. Just tell me this or this, you know? I I don't want to go looking for an answer. I don't want (laughs) to wrestle with uncertainty and ambiguity. I just, you know, and, and I, now looking back, it was, perhaps the best question he could teach me to ask even, right? Is as I continue to wrestle with questions today, whether it's about motherhood or leadership or whatever the case is, to pause for a moment before, you know, I start seeking out the certainty and Mm -hmm. one, you know, seek the scriptures and, and wonder what it is God might be saying to me in this moment and to be okay with the uncertainty and not having it, you know, but that is like, that is a, it's a hard place. Uh-huh. To be it's a time. hard place to be because nobody wants a leader that is not certain about something. And even in the past two years, I was uh, talking with one of my mentors, um, maybe three weeks ago. And she said, one of the hardest things that I've had to do as a leader is project certainty when everything is falling apart. When I was a seminary chaplain, a full seminary for two years to project a calm and non-anxious presence, even if I was falling apart on the inside. (laughs) You know, I I worked for eight years at a hospital uh, in my 20s as an interpreter, Spanish-English interpreter. And to remain grounded in times of trauma has actually helped me help me in my pastoral work to remain a calm, non-anxious presence when, when every, everything seems to be falling apart around us. So it puts a lot of pressure on the leader, right? But uh, there's an invitation there. There's an invitation to rely on the Holy Spirit um, that's beyond our, our human limitations. What I love about what both of you just said was there's an invitation to lean in mm-hmm. of the person that asking the question. It, like, Alicia, when you were saying, I mean, you could get mad and walk away, right? But if the question was that important or the issue was that important, you probably leaned in, right? Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. or into that mystery. And so there's this shared space. So this, let me try something with mm. this. And, and it came actually, as you were talking, Alicia, I have young adult children. And one of the biggest pieces for me Well, first of all, I just want to say my parenting philosophy has always been that they would be able to live independently without me and get out of my house. So like that was from ever, you know, from like three or four probably, right? I'm not one that needs, they need to stick with me forever. And so there was this sense of like, as they went into young adult years of like, how do I shift from me all the all-knowing, not that I ever was, but from even pretending to be saying how do I help you? Right. And this sense of one of the things I learned really quickly with our youngest, when she went to college is when she would call me and ask me these questions, usually that was the presenting issue and there was something deeper going on. Mm. And so this sense of listening, which we've already talked about in, in innovation is so critical and especially Mm -hmm. in times of uncertainty, but also of going down and saying, what do you need for me? Or how can I come alongside you in this journey of Mm. discovery? right? So what I like, translate that to leadership, right? What I like, uh, and maybe you can speak to this in your own ministry experiences, how does the leader not being the the all-knowing person or the person with all the answers, both invite people to lean in together, 
But also then how does the leader create space, brave space for everybody to say, well, I don't know either, but it makes me scared or Mm -hmm. whatever else it might make you do. Can you talk about like maybe experiences you've had with that or lessons you've learned? Yes. That is such a great question. I'm so glad you asked that, Terry. I hadn't even thought about sharing this, but in this past couple of years, when I was a seminary chaplain, one of the things that I enjoyed doing the most was spiritual direction with doctoral students, where we engage in different parts of our our bodies that are not just our academic brains and engaging our hearts and our souls and uh, inviting in community, communal discernment. So having spiritual direction groups, uh, two of my colleagues at Fuller Seminary are actually trained spiritual directors. So they were training me on the art of listening, on the art of being a spiritual director, on the art of accompanying someone, coming alongside them, not to tell them what to do, but to discern together. It required what Dr. Scott Kermode says here at Fuller, that leadership begins with listening. It requires pausing and not immediately responding to what your flesh wants to say, what you think this other person should say. And so we created these spaces, brave spaces, safe spaces for doctoral students where uh, people would share whatever the spirit led them to share in five minutes about their story. And we would actually pause and have a time of silence for another two or three minutes where we were asking the spirit to tell us what is God's prayer for them, whether God would give us a word or an image or a phrase. And let me tell you how long those two to three minutes felt to stop, to pause, a sacred pause to actually listen. God, what is your prayer for this person about this thing that they just shared? And then we would reflect it back to them and then give them pause for another two minutes after they heard from us. In this sacred silence, that's not, that's so countercultural to society as a whole, but even to the church where we quickly want to speak. When we say, well, let us pray, don't we teach children or new believers that prayer is a conversation with God? And what do we do when we say, let, let us pray at church? We talk 99% of the time. We don't know how to pause and do listening prayer. And so that's what just landed on my heart just now, the art of listening, the art of sacred silence, the art of actually not running my mouth. Can God get a word in? Can God get a word in into through me, to me, and then through me for somebody else where I'm not just, you know, quickly from, and that's not to say that God can't speak through our experience for someone else's discernment, of course, but there's something special that happens and mysterious and spirit-led Like you said, leaning into the spirit and saying, what does the spirit have for this person right now that I, if I'm not listening and if I'm not, if I'm running my mouth, I may not hear from God a mystery. And it could be just the courageous question that they need to hear that comes from the womb of the spirit and not from me, not from my mouth, not from my words. So I don't know if that kind of addresses what you just asked. I love that you share that, Inez. And, you know, that sounds like a practice that I actually am like, I wonder how I can, you know, use that in some of my work um, and even just some of my family. (laughs) And, you know, it's such a paradigm shift, right? When, especially when you think about um, like congregational leaders today and uh, adjudicatory leaders today, that there's this even cultural shift that's 
very uncomfortable from, you know, looking to leaders as experts and, and the shift, right, that's happening culturally, even though people might have certain titles or be in certain positions today, there's less and less this looking at people as, as the expert in the room per se. And, and that's such a, a leadership shift, that a lot of people are very uncomfortable with, either because they do want the pastor or the ministry leader in the room to be the expert, yes. or they don't. And so, you know, a lot of ministry leaders are kind of in this like middle space of maybe even having been taught how to be the expert in the room. And so, now what? Now, particularly out of the last two years, you know, they're there has been so much uncertainty. I mean, it's literally been impossible for anyone to actually know even, even now, you know, right in 2022, like I feel pretty confidently saying, I don't know what the next two months are going to look like. I can can much more confidently say, I'm actually very uncertain about how things are going to look six months from now. Uh, You know, in pre-pandemic, I think we would have been very confident in saying, here's our strategic plan. This is, you know, these are the things that we're going to be doing. And so we've all been invited into this space, particularly for ministry leaders, that I think for a lot of people is actually very new. And so I'm curious, you know, have you learned how to lean into this art of not knowing? Did it come naturally to you? Just, I'd love to to hear a little bit about how you've gotten more comfortable not knowing. Yes. I don't think it comes natural. And I think we, we need a supernatural assistance from the Holy Spirit. When I think about Paul in the book of Acts, and the vision that he has about the man in Macedonia saying, come help us, come help us. The art of not knowing there, like if we look at that story, it's a beautiful story of not knowing. So Paul's strategic plan, like you to use your words right now, was to go to Macedonia. So Paul and Silas embarked to Macedonia. And what happens? Three times the Holy Spirit redirects, redirects, redirects. And I wonder if Silas was like, yo, Yo, Paul, like, did you not hear? Are we not supposed to, did you not get the vision clear? And so seeing that as an opportunity to, we don't know where we go. We we think we're going to Macedonia, but how we're going to get there is going to be through redirection to see that as an actual opportunity and not a waste of time or, oh my gosh, we don't know what we're doing. I told my co-pastor today, we had a staff meeting. I said, what are we doing, Bobby? What are we doing? I legit said, I don't know what we're doing next week, the next month. And I'm more okay saying that sometimes out of a place of confidence of like, well, I don't know what we're doing or out of a place of despair. But I wonder if Paul and Silas had those conversations too, like, like, what's up, man? Like, and now we can't go, like, are we, are we not supposed to go to Macedonia? Not only that, they get to Macedonia and there's no man to be seen. The Holy Spirit always had Lydia in mind to be the lead female church planter of the first church in Asia. And now I don't know that Paul and Silas were ready for that story. If they had had a vision of a woman in their dreams, they might've been like, oh, I'm not sure what I drank last night. <laughs> right? But they didn't figure it out until they got there that God's plan always was to find this woman. She was always 
in God's plan. They did not know that. But until they got there, they couldn't figure out. And what did they do? They went and looked for a synagogue. There's no synagogue. Lydia is unbothered by the fact that there's no synagogue. No synagogue, no problem. We go by the river, we sing, we worship, and we pray. And then comes Paul and Silas with a fuller revelation, which allows Lydia to begin this house church. And then we wouldn't have the book of Philippians without that woman praying by the river. The art of not knowing even, God never gives us the full vision at once, I always say. He only, God only gives us enough information for us to take the next faithful step. And over and over again, we're going to be tested that way as leaders. If you cannot obey God in the next five minutes, why would he give us the next five-year plan? Sometimes that to me, that happens in the most mundane of ways. Years ago, I was coming home from work and I parked my car in the garage, turned off the car, just like everyone does. And then I heard the Holy Spirit say, turn the car back on again. That didn't make no sense. I know that's a grammatically incorrect sentence, but like that didn't make no sense. I'm coming home from work. I do what I do every day. Park, turn the car off, grab my purse, go in. And the Spirit said, turn it back on. And I was like, oh my gosh. I don't have time for this right now. I turned it back on and the car wouldn't start. The car wouldn't start. And so I was like, oh my goodness. And so through that whole experience, I found out the Lord was saying, this car was not going to start tomorrow morning. You would have been late to work. It would have been uncomfortable for you to get in your car tomorrow morning. This car was not going to start tomorrow morning. But God didn't give me that information. God just said, turn this car back on. And I didn't want to do it. And I, it didn't make sense. But I, God is always speaking to us through the most mundane and ordinary places in order for us to do extraordinary things. That's how I see Paul's vision to Macedonia. God just said, go to Macedonia, find this man. Well, three redirections later, you get there and there's no man. Was God wrong? Or did God always have Lydia in mind? And so the art of not knowing, we have had to over and over, sometimes just go and try things. And we do what Dr. Mark Lau Branson calls the PT cycle, the practical theology cycle, action reflection theory. We act, we reflect back and we say, well, how did that go? Was that good? Where did we see the spark of the spirit? Where did the spirit stop us? What caught our attention about this event or prototype or thing that we're experiencing or exploring about? What questions did it raise? And then we build theory out of that. Praxis that is grounded in theory and theory that is sustained by praxis. And we do that over and over and over in our church, especially as my co-pastor Bobby Harrison and I planted a church during a pandemic where there was no manual. And even though I planted a church 20 years ago, none of that mattered because we're, we were in a new place with new challenges, with constantly moving factors, we had to use reimagination about how we thought about community, spiritual intimacy, sermons, gatherings in person or online. We had to constantly prototype things that we did not know if they were going to work, but we had to take the risk and turn and pivot, <laughs> pivot from disappointment to determination constantly, constantly, and not be afraid to risk, not be afraid to fail, and not be afraid to say, well, that didn't work. Let's try something else. Because nobody ever learns anything from being perfect. So every even 
even every mistake we made, we learned something from it. And we are better pastors, better faith leaders, better community organizers from these past two years. I still don't know what we're doing. We're figuring it out on our way to Philippi. And we're finding like the spirit does, the same Holy Spirit that birthed the church in Acts is the same Holy Spirit that is with us today as faith leaders, helping us with these contractions of this kingdom right now, these pains, these labor pains. They're different than 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago. They're different than two years ago. And so for this time right now, where is the spirit taking us and into whose lives? That's a theme that I see in the book of Acts. And it is a theme of not knowing, of always asking, where is the spirit taking us and into whose lives? And also that our community has the answers. Another thing that we have done in our ministry is we try to decenter ourselves as leaders. We have a multi-ethnic community, multicultural and we have two co-pastors. Uh, I'm a female. And my co-pastor is a white male. Uh, we're both married, but not to each other. There's a lot of lines that we're crossing in this embodied leadership of co-pastorship. And so one thing that we want to plant in the DNA of our church is that we don't have all the answers, but that the body can take care of itself, that the church can take care of itself, that there's teachers in the audience, that we're not the only experts. And so the art of conversation with our community helps us approach problems and help us design prototypes and help us design problem-solving things and things that we experiment in our community. So one way that we have done that and to decenter the clergy is on Sunday mornings for the first year that we were planting this church in, in our, what we call our Zoom living room during the pandemic, we had five minutes of everybody shares a testimonio. Testimonio is a spiritual practice and a cultural practice from the Nicaraguan church. So I brought that as a gift. And we say, you know, everyone in testimonio is a teacher. There are teachers here, Bobby and Ines, Pastor Bobby, Pastor Ines, we're not the only teachers. Everyone is an expert in their own story. And there's teachers in the audience. And through testimonio, everyone has something to teach and all of us have something to learn. So we decenter the clergy by allowing people to share their testimonial. That didn't mean, oh, tell me your story of how you came to Jesus. Just what is Jesus teaching you right now? What questions do you have? How have you seen Jesus and how have you missed Jesus? What faith questions do you have? What doubt do you have? What curiosity do you have? What courageous questions do you have? What grief and what lament do you have? Our church is really good at lamenting because we have a heart for racial justice and reconciliation. So we lament racial injustice. We lament the way that the church has been complicit to systemic racism and systemic sexism. We, we lament that very well, but lamentation precedes liberation. And so through storytelling and by centering the margins and at our church, we say the margins become our middle. Everyone is a teacher and we all have something to learn. So the art of not knowing what someone's going to say before they share the testimonial is also a release of us as leaders to say, they just need to tell the story, even if their story is undone. They're still becoming, because God's creation of us is always ongoing, right? So even if their testimony is not tidy, we don't need tidy testimonials. We need true testimonials. So even the way we go about how we share the mic, per se, is a way of not knowing, but also decentering clergy and allowing the body to mature the body and allowing the body to take care of herself and to help mature us to um, hopefully to the knowledge of Christ and to the hope of Christ, right?
So many wonderful stories. And thanks for putting us in a biblical story and in a ministry uh, experience. What I kept thinking about as you were talking about is part of as a leader, the art of not knowing or leadership, even with the collective within a congregation or ministry is is letting, naming, recognizing the kind of paradigms or the lenses of which we are, make assumptions around mm-hmm. and holding them lightly and even being willing to put them down. Mm-hmm. And I think it's your lament both for me is sometimes that lamenting is I have to let go. Like what's been meaningful for me is not meaningful for someone else and actually can be um, painful. Yeah. To someone else. Right. Mm -hmm. And to, and that's so hard. Yeah. And then the second hard is, and can I lay that down Mm -hmm. without knowing what I'm going to pick up yet? You know? And so I love the practices that you're, you were talking about, because I think it's an iterative process, right? I lay it down and I pick it up and, oh yeah, I picked it up again. I got to lay it down or, Mm -hmm. or that's another expression of it. And I think like that, the pathway to Macedonia was one step at a time, just one step at a time. You're not going to get there all in one, right? That this is an ongoing iterative reframing that happens with a lot of lament and just embracing the uncertainty in a new way each time, right? That it's leading into it, that it's okay. Yes. And the spiritual practice of lamentation, which is so underutilized, it's it's utilized in my Nicaraguan church community, right? In the Brown church community. But that spiritual practice, like Hannah's lamentation in the Old Testament over and over, becomes a liturgical practice that shapes not only us, but the character of a community. And so those things that are iterative, they are shaping the character of a community and they're making us conform more to the form of Christ. But it does require a scary, terrifying release, Terry. You're right. I'm so grateful that we were just talking about the lament uh, practice. We um, talked about that a couple episodes ago. And one of the the practice that we would just love to do with you today, Inez, is this tool that we can use when we do identify, you know, a challenge, whether it's in our congregations or our ministries or adjudicatories and so we might be able to name what the challenge is, but sometimes that still means like we're stuck, you know, but okay, now what, you know? <laughs> and so uh, there's a tool that we refer to as how might we, that can be really helpful in helping us get unstuck when we are find ourselves in a place of uncertainty and, and uncertain about what a next step might be. And uh, the how might we tool really is a method for kind of framing questions. You know, once we identify a challenge or we have a problem statement um, that we've identified, and really it's intended to help us create space for a variety of approaches to the particular challenge to be named by a group. And in the, the design process, really when we're thinking about faithful innovation, We want to think expansively and avoid getting too focused on one solution 
too early. And when I say that, I have to go back to that text in Acts 16, because I can only imagine, you know, that, you know, Paul and Silas, they were not looking for Lydia, right? Like they were very narrowly focused on that man. We got to find that man. And Mm -hmm. great, thankfully, right? They're open when they um, happened upon Lydia and her companions, And we have a process today that can really help us to not get so narrowly focused because it can really, it can be easy to do that. And so when we ask and use the tool, how might we really the how suggests uh, that we don't yet have the answer because how asking how helps us set aside our prescriptive um, briefs and it helps us explore a variety of uh, ways of going about something instead of just executing immediately or activating immediately for those other activators besides me on what we think the solution should be to our challenge. Yes. Uh, And then when we ask might, really that emphasizes that our response may only be possible solutions, not the only solution. And when we ask might, it it also allows for us to explore multiple possible solutions and not just settle on the first thing that comes to mind. Because, you know, we might get some things wrong and that is okay. Mm-hmm. And then when we ask we... It immediately brings the uh, in the element of collaborative effort and collaborative work. And the we suggest that the idea for any solution really lies in our collective community, that I alone, you know, do not have the best answer for what might be next for us, but we do. And so I'd love for us to even just share uh, if there are ways that we've used the how might we tool in our personal lives or in our ministries. Well, I got a really quick one. And then that is nothing to do with ministry. But we, our youngest daughter got married in 2021. So we're thought, oh, when COVID hit in 2020, it'll for sure be done by May 2021. So like they just paused all the planning and just went on hold for six months. And then it's like, nope. So what was interesting for me is I was really grateful for this set of innovation tools because I got to use them in my house. But this one, how might we, became so important with every step of the way. Can't have a shower, can't do this, can't do this. And then it was like, all right, what is important about that? What are the resources we have available? What what do you want my my daughter's an emotional person? What do you want it to feel like? She could describe, she's an interior designer, so she could describe things. And then I'm like, let's just brainstorm. How might we do this and this? And what was really fun is it got us unstuck so many times. And often it was like, we could better articulate the feel and the importance of what the event wanted it to be. And then she was less concerned about the package. And she was able to say, this is what's meaningful for me. So it pulled out from her the meaningful part and it it kind of helped us be creative in a variety of ways. That's the like biggest one for me in COVID. But I bet Inez has a million that she's had to do. <laughs> I don't know a million, have a million questions. I don't have a million answers. But when I think uh, about ministry context, one of the things uh, we have asked of how might we, we have been an online community that has developed 
intimate spiritual community. We have cultivated community. Uh, we have put a lot of work on our online community for the past year and a half. And so we started meeting back in person in October. We were slowly off-ramping from the online community and slowly on-ramping. Of course, right now we're on pause again because of this uh, Omicron variant in the month of January. But we found a church that is hosting us, so we're renting play, a space here in an, another church. And so we have asked ourselves, how might we be collaborative and not competitive? How do we cooperate across lines, still with a missional impulse in the city? But if anything, the pandemic shook the church in North America to, to show us the ways that we have been consumeristic at best, or at worst, I'm sorry, um, competitive at worst as well. And so if the church has been reframed and it has been crushed because of the pandemic, how might we return back to in-person in a way that's collaborative and cooperative, still with a missional impulse and, 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 and not enter into a city saying, well, we are the best church. We have all the answers because we're going to do it this way. We're not going to do it that way. But how might we join God's work? in the city and to do it in a way that's not colonized, that's not imperialistic, you know? And so my co-pastor and I are joining a cohort called Reconcile Pasadena is put together by the Center by of Center for Racial Reconciliation. And it's trying to collect clergy from all over the city so that we can look at different uh, systemic issues uh, in the city of Pasadena. So like policing, housing, homelessness, immigration, how has systemic racism built the city of Pasadena and how also has the church in Pasadena historically been complicit to it? And how might we together look at the city as not ours, but like individualistic, but collectively and say, how can we together cooperate across all these lines? And so I'm looking forward to not coming with the stone tablets vision off the mountain, right? But to go with humility with other leaders and return to a place of collaboration and cooperation. So I don't have all the answers yet because we're going to walk together for about six months and we'll see where the spirit takes us or even redirects our church in that. So there's a lot more questions, but this is how we're doing it as we're trying to, with respect and hospitality and dignity, come into a city where we don't want to be like, oh, we're the best. We want to come with a lot more questions than we have answers. That's beautiful, Inez. One of the things that I think of in ways that that I've used this tool with a, a team uh, in the last couple of years now, I guess, really is with the Seeds Fellowship, which Inez was part of the uh, uh, part of the first cohort um, that went through in 2021, and and really how we designed and went about designing a fellowship for for ministry leaders. Partly in part because we were designing it in the midst of a pandemic. And so how might we, uh, you know, help to connect, right, uh, relationally connect these ministry leaders from around the country, diverse backgrounds and spaces and places, because we know that loneliness is such a, a huge need. And so relationships with other people in ministry is such a huge need, particularly uh with ministry leaders who are asking the questions about how might we be church in the 21st century today? Um, because it, it might look different than a lot of uh, other communities around them. And so sometimes that can be a really lonely go. And so we 
constantly as we were um, really developing the Seeds Fellowship and and with fellows uh, building the plane as we were flying it, constantly asked how might we in response to the needs that fellows brought to the table and and figuring out how we could really um, best serve them uh, throughout their fellowship in in time in the Seeds Fellowship. And so the How Might We tool is such a really, I find, I love the opportunity that it kind of the energy and opportunity it creates is as you start to generate a bunch of different ideas, particularly because usually the best ideas kind of build on some of the initial ideas that come forth that we might think is going to be like the answer. But really when we start engaging the question communally, it's amazing uh, how when you bring all the gifts and backgrounds and experiences of people to the table, the kind of ideas that can be birthed out of that that are often, I want to say always, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that so, such a use such a strong word, but but so often, right, the the better idea comes out of all of us thinking collectively of how might we um, move forward faithfully. I so appreciate these conversations around this because I think of, and as where you ended, like how might churches come together and not be competitive, but collaborative to things that just matter to communities. And they're so huge, right? I also love kind of what you, what I'm picking up, Alicia, from what you said is it's the, it's the kind of tool and practice that you can just have in your back pocket. And when you get to a place that you're kind of don't know what to do, you can bring it out again and again and again, and we can empower people at every intersection they get stuck to say, hey, let's just ask these questions really quick. How might we? You know, what's the challenge? What mm-hmm. are what do we think the cause of this is? What are the resources and assets available to us? And yes. what how do we feel about it? Now let's just start putting stuff out there. And and that really to me is a is kind of the Holy Spirit redirect moment, right? The opportunity that we have. Well, we have had a rich conversation and I feel like we could talk even more. I have so many questions about this amazing ministry and as that you guys are up to and and frankly, as a person that used to live in Southern California, would just love to come and visit. Anytime. You're welcome. Put that on and maybe do some salsa dancing. And I think there might be some good food that could come with that salsa dancing. Oh my goodness. Yes. We'd like to eat at this church. We have so much good food. I love that. Uh, Next time, Alicia, we're going to go on the road, I think, with Pivot for that. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. (laughs) Awesome. Well, our next episode is going to take this the next step into experimenting itself. So we look forward to that episode. And we thank you, Inez, for being with us and for our listeners for joining us for The Art of Not Knowing. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Pivot Podcast. For more leadership resources, go to faithpluslead.luthersem.edu.